I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel 14. As usual, we'll be in the life of David during this season. Um, again, all of David's life, everything that we have studied, all points to our ultimate hope in Jesus. As I said at the beginning of our series, David is the great link between the covenant with Abraham and the new covenant we have in Christ Jesus. And so every week I've tried to make that connection for you, how everything in David Though David is broken and sinful and struggles, he is the covenant king and God's grace is on him because ultimately Jesus will come through David's line. And so this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and we're going to be looking at the aftermath, the continuing aftermath of the David and Bathsheba saga. Now, back a couple weeks ago in chapter 12, God graciously confronts, uh, God graciously sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront David over his adultery, his deception, and his murder of Uriah. And at that point, God's word shatters David and brings him to repentance. Though David is forgiven, this is a lesson for us as well, though David is forgiven, there are still consequences. We can be forgiven and still suffer the consequences of our sin. It is still true. Um, and God reveals to David that there will be even more severe consequences for him and his house. Again, God says to David in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, this is what God says. Now therefore, now that you've done this, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We're still not sure how this is going to happen. There's one step further to this in chapter 14. So that led, chapter 12, to chapter 13, where Amnon, David's son, becomes sinfully infatuated with Tamar, his half-sister, who's also David's daughter, and he rapes her. This evil act ultimately leads to Absalom, David's other son, and full brother to Tamar, murdering Amnon out of revenge two years later. Chapter 13, if you're there, look at the end of chapter 13, which has Absalom on the run, away from what could be any consequences for this murder. It says in verses 37 through 39, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, uh, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. He's mourning for Amnon. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now chapter 14 is going to deal with how Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem from exile. What we're going to see in this story are the intentions of man and the intentions of God. That's my title, the intentions of man and the intentions of God. We're going to see God's providence in the midst of cunning and manipulation. Now I'll say here at the beginning, no matter how cunning someone is, 
or how well they can scheme and plan and manipulate, God's purposes will not be thwarted. Amen? Amen. No matter what, no matter, no matter the schemes and manipulations of man, God's plans will prevail. That should bring us great hope and never, should lead us to never despair of any circumstances. And in the end, no matter how much anyone schemes or plans, their purposes will only serve to accomplish God's purposes. As Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And the next verse says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. Or as the famous poet To a Mouse by Robert Burns says, The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And what we're going to see today are the plans of men and the ultimate plans of God. So let's look at just two sections here of, I'm going to break uh, chapter 14 into two sections. Very easy outline. We're going to see the manipulation of Joab and the manipulation of Absalom. So let's read verses 1 through 22 together. You'll notice the title in mine says, uh, says Absalom returns to Jerusalem. It says, now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow, and my husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. And there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has arisen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house. I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord, the lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die, 
We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord the King because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought. I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. It's quite the story. Then the king answered the woman, do, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left hand from anything my lord the king has said. When translated means yes. It's a lot of words to get to Yes. All right, it was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did all this. That's the important line. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all the things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, who's been standing by watching, Behold now, I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. Okay, that's a lot of reading, but we want to go through this and learn a bunch of things. First, I want you to know first that the purposes and intentions of Joab in this chapter are most likely honorable. Joab intends good. Lest you have forgotten, Joab is David's nephew. He's the leader of David's army. He grew up with David in Bethlehem and has walked side by side with him from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He is David's right-hand man. Though David, though him and David had not seen eye to eye on everything, I'm not going to rehash all those stories, Joab has loyally protected King David. He knows the royal family is in disarray and in danger of securing the future of the kingdom with Amnon dead and Absalom in exile. Politically, the, the kingdom is in turmoil. He knows how David thinks, and he knows that David is conflicted about what to do. David is so conflicted that the text here is even in conflict with how David feels. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 says that the spirit of the king's heart ceased to go out to Absalom. That's in chapter 12. The, the, heart, the heart of King David ceased to go out to Absalom. And in chapter 14, verse 1, it says that Absalom, it says that uh, Joab knew the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now, commentators are as confused as everyone. Is David's heart going out or is it not going out? What does that mean? Well, it seems that go out is a military term. That's the term. Go out is a military term for engaging the enemy. So if that is the case, 
then David simply didn't go out against Absalom when he was in exile in Geshur. And he, David basically allowed him to remain in exile. And so in, verse four, four, in chapter 14, verse 1, Joab knows that the king, if given the chance, will bring justice to Absalom. That David's decided that he deserves justice. That's why he stays in exile. This explains why Joab has to manipulate the king's heart regarding him. If David's heart really longed for him to come home, you don't need a woman from Tekoa to convince him. Just say, nudge, 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 wink, wink, David, bring him home. David's very conflicted, as any of us would be, about a son who has done something horrible. Second, Joab intentionally, again, sends for this crafty woman from Tekoa to aid his plan. The text says wise, but it's the same word used for Jonadab last week, who craftily taught Amnon how to seduce his half-sister and basically get her alone. All right, that's what it means. So she, she's basically here playing this skillful or cunning person, and she's basically playing the same part as Nathan did, except God put words in Nathan's mouth, Joab puts words in her mouth. Okay, Remember, Nathan also goes and confronts David with a story. But there's a glaring difference, as I just said. The author of Samuel specifically tells us that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Here, Joab sends this woman. Third, okay, also like the prophet Nathan, this crafty woman of Tekoa, this Tekoan, has a story to relate to the king. She pretends, right? We know she's pretending. David doesn't. She pretends to be a woman in mourning. She's dressed like it. She acts like it. She's a widow that's lost her husband. Now, is any of that true? No. We don't, we, Nathan's story could have absolutely been true. We don't, this story we know is false. All right? She hopes that she can also entice the king to pronounce judgment on himself, much like David did with Nathan. So she tells this carefully crafted story that, if you'll notice carefully, it mirrors the story of Cain and Abel back in Genesis right? If you remember that story of Cain and Abel, you have two brothers who fight in a field with no one to separate them. One strikes the other and he dies. And just as the Lord himself spared Cain's life, sent him away, right? And protected him from others who may seek vengeance. This woman wants the king to protect her only remaining son from her clan that demands justice. So she subtly accuses her clan, by the way, of not really wanting justice. What do they want? They want her property. They're going to take away the heir. They want my property, king. It's not really about justice. This is about my property. Okay? That's why she says in verse 7, they really want to destroy the heir, not destroy her son. But, again, several differences between this woman's story and the reality of Absalom's crime. If you're going to tell a story, at least get the parts right. If you're going to tell a good analogy, it all needs to make sense. There's a glaring difference between her story and Absalom. First, her story involves manslaughter, not murder. Why do I say that? Right? The law of Moses allows for mercy in such a case and makes a clear distinction between murder and manslaughter. You can read about that in Exodus 21. From her account... Her two sons simply go into a, go into, get, get, they're, they're actually out in a field, they get into a fight, and one strikes the other and they die. There's the heat of a moment, there's a fight, 
somebody happens to die. Absalom, however, is guilty of calculated, premeditated, long-awaited murder. He plots for two years to murder Amnon. And in David's case, it doesn't seem like he's one of the family members actively seeking to destroy Absalom, though if given the chance, he might. But David hears this case, this made-up case, and David gives her a favorable ruling. He just says, hey, go about it. Nobody's going to touch your son. But as you already know, she's not satisfied with that. The king has yet to connect her story with his own situation. She's got to connect the dots for David. God's word did it in Nathan's story. So she presses the king. She wants the king to invoke the name of the Lord, to swear a solemn oath concerning her son. David's happy to oblige. He says in verse 11, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. But once again, she's not satisfied. She presses again. She accuses David directly. Look carefully at verses 12 through 14. She says that David has planned this same thing against the people of God. Not against his son. David has planned it against the people of God. Because ultimately this is about Absalom being the next king. David has intended to take away the heir, though God, just like Cain, has found a way to spare him. But again, there's a huge difference between this woman and the prophet Nathan. God's word through Nathan sought to stir up David's conscience regarding justice. That's what Nathan wanted. Nathan wanted David to recognize justice, convict his conscience. Here, she's trying to stir up David's feelings in order to disregard justice. Now, how often does that happen in our culture? It's not about justice. It's about how people feel. That's what she wants. She wants David to feel a certain way about his son when, what, when justice demands something else. Okay? So, that's not wisdom. That's sentimentality. She tips her hand in verse 16, and she appeals again to her son. That doesn't exist because this whole story is made up and David now knows it. Now it is here that David wisely detects the hidden hand of Joab. It is Joab who has filled her mouth and manipulated David, though again, it's probably for a noble cause from his perspective. Verse 20 is the linchpin. Joab wants to change the course of things and he succeeds. Absalom doesn't have to remain in exile. He's gonna, David grants his request to bring him home. Now here's my point. I want you all to think carefully. Again, this is the intentions of God and the intentions of man. David is able to detect here the hidden hand of Joab. My question is, can you detect the hidden hand of God's providence? Joab's intentions and God's intentions are not aligned here. Joab wants to help David and protect David's house. He wants Israel's future king to be safe and secure. But this is not what God intends. This is going to play out exactly the opposite of the story of Joseph. Right? You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers? They, they intended evil for Joseph by selling him into slavery and exiling him into Egypt. God intended to save their lives through Joseph's exile. 
Hmm. Here, Joab intends to save David's house by bringing back the heir from exile. God intends to bring all of this down on David's head. There are so many times in our lives that our intentions do not match God's intentions. For good or bad. Some of us can have really good intentions for others. It's not God's intentions. Some of us can have really bad intentions, and you should repent of those. Because those might not be God's intentions. So for all of, for, so for all of here, here in this text, for all of this woman's wisdom, this to Cohen's, and all of Joab's wisdom, there's really no wisdom defined here. This is a lesson for all of us here in this room and for anyone else who happens to listen. Things in our lives, things in our culture, things in our policies, things in our government can all give the appearance of wisdom and craftiness and understanding and savvy and at the same time be completely empty of it. Just think about it. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. You can have all the best intentions of the world. It's not going to matter a hill of beans except what God intends. As Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's the manipulation of Joab. Now let's look at the manipulation of Absalom. Verses 23-33. Let's pick up with the rest of the story. Alright, here we go. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. Doesn't sound like the king has forgiven him yet, does it? So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There should be a footnote down there that says uh, that's a lot. All right? There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time to Joab, and he would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Y'all, that's hilarious. That is hilarious. Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come to Geshur? It would be better for me than to be here still. Sorry, it would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed him. Okay, so here we find Absalom back in Jerusalem, but still not in the good graces of King David. David intends to keep him at a distance. Maybe David doesn't trust him. After all, he 
plotted for two years to kill his son, maybe David is still incredibly angry. Maybe David fears him, or he should. Whatever the reason, Absalom isn't allowed to see the king and must dwell in his own house. It's also here that we get a glimpse of how everybody views Absalom. There seems to be this strange aside in verses 25 through 27 that describes Absalom's appearance. They say he, you know, he basically um, is a good-looking guy. Not a blemish in him from head to toe. All right? So it's Brad Pitt-looking rascal. All right? So that's who he is. And you might go, well, this is just an aside, but I don't think that's the case. I think the author is doing something very intentional. First, he's foreshadowing Absalom's vanity regarding his hair, because that's going to be his undoing later in the story. Second, the author is showing us a picture of the perfect candidate for a political career that will ultimately lead to the very throne of Israel. Absalom is the best-looking guy in all of Israel. Not a blemish on him. Looks like Chris Helmsworth. All right? He's easy on the eyes, a hit with all the ladies. He's full of charisma and charm. He has a beautiful family, three strapping young boys who will make excellent princes. And one daughter, aptly named after her beautiful aunt, Tamar. What's glaringly missing from this description of Absalom is any mention of spirituality. Any mention of wisdom, any mention of character, any mention of principles or scruples. He's not like his father David, who is described over and over again, despite his faults, as a man after God's own heart, who is to shepherd his people Israel. No, no, no. Absalom looks like what the world wants in its politicians and in its leaders. We want those who look good and sound good as opposed to those who just demonstrate humility, wisdom, character, godliness. And by the way, the church can be just as guilty with this and how they choose their pastors and their leaders. It's all about how they look and appear in public. It has nothing to do with their spirituality or their godliness. Back to David and Absalom. All that was free. For two years now, Absalom is content to obey the king's command of not coming into his presence. So for those keeping count, how long has it been since he's seen David? Five years. Five years. Five long years. And Absalom is sick of the status quo. It's not going to cut it, by the way. The status quo isn't going to cut it if your intentions are to be the king. You can't stay in exile, and you certainly can't stay out of the political court from a distance. After all, Solomon is quickly growing under the care and tutelage of Israel's best. He's probably five years old as well at this time. Absalom decides it's, best to, it's, it's time to see his father David. So he sends for Joab. But Joab isn't answering his phone or checking his DMs. Absalom keeps tweeting at him, but no avail. Some of y'all don't know what any of that means. But Absalom like many we've seen around David, is a practical man, a man of action. Time to resort to plan B. Plan B is sending up an old-fashioned Indian smoke signal. Now, for those who don't know what that is, Absalom sets Joab's field on fire, okay, while there's barley in it. Now Joab is listening. Absalom wants to see the king even if it costs him his life. It's a calculated risk, but he figures after five years, 
David has no intentions of killing who should be next in line for the throne, right? He wants to see the king no matter what. Absalom wants to know why he has been brought back from Geshur. If I'm innocent, treat me that way. And if I'm guilty, put me to death. He does not mean that. That is not what he wants. That's just talk. But anyway, so the chapter begins with Joab manipulating David, probably for good intentions. Then Absalom manipulates Joab for his own purposes, as we will see next week. And now Absalom manipulates David, who has been conflicted about this the whole time. And verse 33 gives us the conclusion. Then Joab went and told the king, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, bowed himself on, on, the face, on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. I imagine that was a very awkward meeting. Notice that the text says that Absalom comes to the king, not to his father. That's important. This isn't, you know, he approaches like a servant, not like a son. Now you might go, well, hey Jacob, this is like the prodigal son coming home. This is what we see in Luke 15. Um, no, it's not like the prodigal, home, prodigal, son, prodigal son coming home. The prodigal son comes home in repentance. He comes home saying, I've sinned against heaven and against your throne. I'm not worthy to be called a son. Make me like a servant. That's not Absalom's intentions at all. There is no repentance. There is no weeping. There is no sorrow. Despite that and the formality of the kiss, Absalom, though, has succeeded. From his perspective, all is going according to plan. If you asked him, he would probably even speak of God's providence and God's protection and God's mercy. Things have gone so well for Absalom. He murders his brother and gets away with it. He's exiled and is brought back home. He produces a lovely family. He's been brought into the king's presence. The, only, the next step for Absalom on this glorious ride is the very throne of Israel. It's all God's will. But is it? Is this what God intends? Again, the intentions of man and the intentions of God are not always the same. Is this all for Absalom's good or is this for David's judgment? Again, hear me. Just because, hear me, hear all of you in this room, listen. Just because things are going well for you, that does not mean that you're under God's blessing. And on the flip side, if things are going terrible for you, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care or isn't involved. God intention, God's intentions and our intentions do not always align. For example, I read this story in my studies this week about another historical figure who believed he was doing God's will and was protected by divine providence. Here's the story. It was July 20th, 1944. A military conference was in progress. A briefcase had been left under the table. Suddenly it exploded with a blazing sheet of flame. Some moments later, Adolf Hitler, the intended victim, was staggering outside the debris, singed and tattered, but surviving with only temporary paralysis in his right arm and a punctured eardrum. Mussolini was scheduled to arrive soon, so Hitler hurried off to meet the train. Hitler brought Mussolini back to the wolf's lair and showed him the damage, and this is what is recorded that he said. Quote, frankly, Deuce, 
I regard this event as the pronouncement of divine providence. When Mussolini admitted he had made a marvelous escape, Hitler retorted, quote, Marvelous? It's more than that. It's God's intervention. Look at this room. Look at my uniform. When I reflect on this, I know nothing will happen to me. Clearly, it is my divine task to continue on and bring my great enterprise to completion. That's called Hitlerian hermeneutics. Even the most perverted minds, listen, even the most perverted minds and the most perverted hermeneutics can justify their actions and decisions as being directed by God. All of us can do it. It does not make it so. Hitler may think it's God's providence. Absalom may think it's God's providence. But the truth here is that Absalom's success isn't for him. God intends to bring judgment through him. Now hear me. As I close, y'all have done so well paying attention. I want to make this brief. Amen. Hear the conclusion, which is the most important part of everything. Is everybody tuned in? Here is the point of everything. As I close, there's another famous story from the Bible that involves the sovereignty of God and the plans of men. The intentions of God versus the intentions of men. And that is the story of the cross. The intentions of the religious leaders and the intentions of Pilate were to crucify and murder the sinless Son of God. They meant evil against Him. God's intentions was to save the world through Him. God's intentions was that through Jesus' death for our sin to be paid. The intentions of the two were as far apart as the east is from the west. The cross showed us the pinnacle of man's inclination towards evil. We're doing God's will by striking this, this sinful person who claims to be the Messiah. There is no greater evil than to murder the sinless Son of God. But the cross also showed us the pinnacle of God's love and mercy and justice. There is no greater display than Christ willingly offering himself up for the sins of those that he loves. The intentions are so differently, it's incalculable. And because of the cross, hear me, we can know and trust the hand of God even behind the hardest and most difficult seasons of our lives. It is because of the cross that we can know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And it's because of the cross that we, like Joseph, that I mentioned earlier, can say to those that meant harm and evil toward us, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is the banner written over our entire lives, that man's intentions for us are not always God's intentions, but we can trust God's intentions no matter what happens. And David can too. Because though God will bring justice against David, the heir is still safe. And the heir is not Absalom. It is Solomon. Because Jesus will be a son of David from Solomon's line. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of His Word. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I pray today that, Lord, as we think about your intentions and the intentions of man and how they, not always, they don't always line up, 
Father, that we would trust you no matter what we see, that we would trust your hidden hand even in the midst of those who might seek to do us good and those who might seek to do us evil. So, Father, I pray that in our lives we would seek by prayer, by Bible study, by loving and following you and walking by your Spirit to live our lives intentionally for your glory, that our intentions would be to honor Jesus. And, Father, we pray for any in this room that do not know him, that today they would lay down their sin and their evil intentions and they would come to Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name.